Welcome to the second episode of Dialogica. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Swedian. And we, armed with the flimsy but earnest logic of 20-something millennials, talk about the latest in politics, society, and feminism in Indonesia and the world. This week, we're going to be talking about the KPI censorship issues, as well as ideas of toxic masculinity and the patriarchy. Patriarchy. The patriarchy. As well as how the idea of feminism is beneficial for men and women, and it's not a Western construct, but very much a movement and something for Indonesian women in all places and all times. Using examples from history. No animal creatures this time. we're going to talk about the KPI, the Indonesian Broadcasting Commission, and their decisions to try to protect us from reality. So the KPI has only existed since 2002, and it is an independent body within the Indonesian government. So it's actually supported by our tax money. Mm-hmm. So it uses uh, APBN, the commission responsible, there's the central and there's a regional KPI. And so the, all of these people in the commission are actually elected or nominated by the DPR and DPRD, the local parliaments. They're set up with the purpose to regulate broadcasting media in Indonesia. This particular existence started as a response to an old bill in 1997, which said that any broadcasting in Indonesia must be guided and controlled by the government. And so this bill was drafted in 2002 uh, as a response towards the old bill and as a move towards democratization of Indonesian government. The chairman of the KPI, Judarik Sawan, signed and put in effect a regulation prohibiting Indonesian TV programs from depicting transvestites or effeminate men. Specifically, there are seven categories of things that they said is not allowed. One is men wearing feminine fashion, Men wearing feminine makeup, feminine body language exhibited by men, including but not limited to walking style, sitting style, hand gestures, and other behaviors. Men speaking in a feminine way, depicting justification or promoting that men can behave effeminately. That's just against the freedom of speech. And it's also the kind of language uh, it's framed at is like everything is against femaleness or like Staying in the very gender normative mode. Mm-hmm. And then depicting a man greeting another man in ways that are supposed to be for women. <laughs> depicting technologies and colloquial terms that are often used by effeminate males. What does that even mean? <laughs> do, do, tell me, Stephanie, do women greet each other in different ways than men? I don't understand. <laughs> I guess this means you can't hug yeah, and okay. hold hands as yeah. men. Actually, like, be expressive. It's actually somewhat confusing to me as well um, how much authority the Indonesian Broadcasting Commission have because it does have regulatory authority and it has the right to set what should be done. But primarily, the stick element of what they do uh, is questionable. So most of the time, they have surat edaran or just they circulate letters stating what's the new regulation or what's going on, which is the case of the effeminate men decree, right? Um, It was a letter sent out to the various TV networks. Mm -hmm, But it's not exactly clear. Or what if a broadcasting channel doesn't comply with what authority they have besides circulating more letters. But it has caused several cancellations of shows in the Mm -hmm. past. And this came um, shortly after another controversy, which happened during the Miss Indonesia pageant, where part of the TV coverage of that particular event 
blurred out cleavages, fe- female the cleavages of the female contestants. Who are wearing batik, beautiful batiks. To the point where it's almost ridiculous the amount of censoring because it's basically like you see their heads and then just a, a blur complete blur of their bodies. And then legs. And it's like not even well done blurring. I feel like it was tasteful. It's like blurring. indiscriminate blurring. It's just where like, just like everything you cannot are be female. Seen. Everything is blurred. It's like, it's like what? <laughs> anyway, pulling it back. Pulling um, it back. Wow, we're so sassy today. This episode merits it. Uh, from the kapei themselves, they like to use language that is perhaps more threatening than it really is because it's not clear how much power they actually have. But they love to use language that's like we're gonna threaten to close down, or we're gonna mm-hmm. give you sanctions, or we're gonna give you this and this mm-hmm. and this. Coercive. Yeah, very intimidating. Posturing, very, like a lot of posturing. A lot of posturing and very intimidating. Obviously, if like a an independent watchdog is always pressuring you, you won't continue that broadcast. It's just too potentially dangerous for a TV channel. And I think also some channels have you know had to come out with public statements of apologies for the things they've done mm-hmm. on their channels because of this response from KPI. Back in 2012, famed transvestite actor Tessi Srimulat was forced to give up his act and main source of income after have violated what the cafe seemed to be socially and culturally unacceptable for broadcast. I think what is also interesting, it connects with our previous episode about LGBT issues and this idea of controlling how people act and feel. The ban on effeminate behavior came very shortly, not long after the LGBT controversy. Almost as if it's the direct... Empowerment by by all of this backlash, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is very real, tangible ways the KPI has interfered with people's livelihoods, right? It may be incredulous to us, but I mean, we're always discussing here about real, tangible life effects for mm-hmm. people. And that's concerning to us, and it should be for other people. idea that you know women can't fend for themselves they need to be protected it's all about the patriarchy which is something we really want to discuss on this week's episode what do we mean by the patriarchy Sudian? the patriarchy is i think first and foremost not one person not one community but a system a system that favors men over women when we're talking about patriarchy it's not really about men hating or anti-men it's recognizing a system that's inherently unequal The term is used to describe a society we live in today, characterized by current and historic unequal power relations between men and women, whereby women are systematically disadvantaged and oppressed. This definition is from the London Feminist Network. And I think it's actually really helpful to have a definition like that because so many people, especially people who are not used to conversations about feminism and about these things, they're scared of the word patriarchy and as much as they're scared of the word feminism. So I think that the heart of the patriarchal system is this idea of inherent inequality. And it's not something that, you know, there's a big power that's oppressing women everywhere. There's no one thing that oppresses women, but there's this idea that there's this system in which the overall feeling is that women have a lot of disadvantages to men in all varieties and aspects of lives. And so, like, just, I don't know, I think a lot of people kind of assume that men and women are already equal today, and this is the assumption that, you know, just because women have the ability to vote, to drive, to have some personal liberties and financial control over their life, that the struggle is over. And this is very much not true. 
I don't know, I was listening, I was sitting in a coffee shop yesterday and uh, the table next to me of men and women were saying that, oh yeah, like we don't need feminism anymore because men and women are equal. And then someone was saying, a guy was saying, well, men and women are already more than equal. Get back to the kitchen. And like all of this, the girls laughed and I was like... You're not entirely sure if they were laughing awkwardly or they're laughing with him or at him. It's just uncomfortable. Just this idea that, you know, like the struggle is over is something very egregiously wrong. The struggle is certainly not over. I think for a lot of women, before they were even born, the struggle has started, right? This idea of sex-selective abortion. Yeah, so just one example of uh, violence against women in a very massive scale is what's called sex-selective abortion. So the idea of violence against women as being very prevalent and real, I think can be exemplified in the fact that there's 126 million women missing in the world today. The first time this concept was originated was by Amartya Sen, a Nobel Prize winning economist who in the 1990s said that there were 90 million women missing in the world today due to sex-selective abortions. The idea that there's missing women is because there is a shortfall in the number of women in the world relative to the number of that would be expected. If there were no sex-selective abortion and female infanticide and if the newborn of both sexes received the similar levels of healthcare and nutrition. So the idea of that people think that women, women children are especially less valued in different societies causes people to abort their female babies or kill their babies at an early stage, abandon their female babies, or just don't give it enough health care and nutrition that they would to male babies. Even for those who have managed to survive that early childhood violence, right, that form of violence, they still have to face a lifetime of violence as women. And gender disparity just in general. Because of this gender imbalance, it's more likely that men would commit violent crime. Like For every how many women, it means an increase in percentage for men on women violence. It's almost the cycle of violence started by this preemptive act of violence, right? Yeah. From the very beginning, you're not even going to include women into the conversation. And it's also, I think, because of this gender disparity, men are acting out in potentially violent ways or they're like finding different avenues. Mm -hmm. I think it's also part of this conversation around toxic masculinity. What is toxic masculinity, Soy? I mean, I'm sure you'll find many definitions of it, but for me, I think it's this idea. There's a prescribed notion of masculinity that is uh, aggressive, that is dominant, that is uh, superior and concerned with power over other people. Especially women. Especially women, uh, but also towards other men as well. This notion that applies to all men and is what defines being masculine or being a man. It's toxic mm -hmm. because you are so obsessed with how men should be dominant, should be more powerful. It makes men feel like they have to control everything in their lives. And it also like kind of makes a script that you're not a real man unless you do these things. Mm -hmm. And somehow I think it's really sad, you know, as a woman yeah. to hear that. Because I think it's really tiring for men as well, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, at the heart of toxic masculinity is one idea, one interpretation of what it means to be a man. Yeah. And if you've met other men, there's not one idea of being a guy, of being, uh, being a man. And to discredit all the other forms, you're discrediting their experiences. Yeah, right? and I think it's super powerful when I meet guys and they don't feel as if they need to prove something, mm -hmm. you know. Men who are really confident and comfortable with themselves aren't really getting high out of <laughs> this toxic masculinity. Right, like, They're really comfortable with who they are, with their achievements, with their value and worth as a human being, 
outside of their ability to control other people. Yeah, it's a confidence that's distinct from any idea of competition. Yeah. Because the concept of competition is so inherently part of toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why... You want to be the caveman controlling your society. Exactly. You want to be the winner. Yeah. You want to be the victor. And that's not how modern societies work. Right? Like, when you think about that, by saying that every situation is a game or a competition you need to win, you inherently put a situation where there is a power dynamic that you need to shift so that you're the superior individual. And a zero-sum game for you to prove that you're a man, you need to oppress other people. Exactly. And as we're talking about toxic masculinity, right, like popular culture helps reinforce the idea of the alpha male, the dominant individual. Um, The most famous, super successful masculine man is James Bond. And and have you noticed how many people he killed, especially how many women he killed? So actually they did a script study on this and out of the 51 women he slept with in the franchise, 16 and up dead, so a third of the women James Bond sleeps with and ends up dead. Sometimes related to what he does, and he's killed the woman he's been with in the past. It's just not great. And worst part is like, what? You have to sleep with them first right before you kill them. Oh yeah, I don't think they die if you don't no, you guys, with James Bond first. You, got, you gotta have the salacious, like, sensual moment. So the woman here is definitely, like, objectified. An then... accessory to his story. And then she dies. Yeah, it's all to sort of like boost his image as the alpha male, the competitive one, the winner in every situation. I think what is also creepy is the fact that usually they often find the fact that he's very suave and um, dangerous as something attractive. Instead of something toxic. Whereas like, if I see that someone has a lot of guns and kills a lot of people, I would run the other way. <laughs> <laughs> what, that's not attractive to you, Stephanie? I don't think most women find that attractive. That's kind of scary for everyone. A one everyone. in three chance of dying. <laughs> no thanks. But no you get to Bond. sleep with him. But Daniel Craig is awesome, though. Exactly. The good thing is, like, our current James Bond is so much better and He's so much awesome. more awesome. Um, he recognizes the misogyny of his character. Yeah, uh, he said in an interview, hopefully my bond is not as sexist and misogynistic as earlier incarnations. The world has changed. I am certainly not that person. Mm-hmm. There was an interview of what book James Bond should read, and he said, Jumamana Ngozi Adichie's We Should All Be Feminist. Mm-hmm. And, Daniel Craig. and we wholeheartedly endorse that book too. <laughs> it's a great book. It's a great book. Um, and there's a TED Talk on that as well, so if you want to YouTube that, that's doable. So essentially, this idea that, you know, feminism is a Western construct that we can't have any benefits from, that we can't learn from, I think is also very problematic. Just also because uh, feminism has always existed in other ways and other forms. The term feminist and feminism may have come from the West, but the idea that uh, women want equality, power, and Safety has always been a part of and the life of any woman, any place, at any time. Indonesians have Kartini, Indonesians have a lot of other various figures like... Like, as we just discovered, to our delight, Rasuna Said. Kajang yeah. Rangkuya Rasuna Said. She is a woman! <laughs> yeah, so Jalan uh, Rasuna Said is one of the biggest roads in Jakarta. It's caused me so much headache in terms of being such a source of traffic. But now it's going to be a source of delight because I just realized it's named after a great female Indonesian hero. 
Uh, also in particular, our realization that it was a woman has been, you know, just showcased how much we assume and presume about, you know, the patriarchy, yeah. you know, like, just because it's a major road, we assume that that would be a male hero. I mean, I, I thought it was going to be a, like a male general, you know, it's like how Sudirman is like named after a military leader, a male military leader. So yeah, just a short bio about uh, Rasuna Said. She was born in Sumatra and she was a progressive women activist. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a time, you know, she, she was born in 1910 and her most active years was years leading up to the revolution to independence and then the first few formative years of independence. She was working at a time when feminism as we know it hasn't really happened Taken yet. Off. Yeah, like, I mean, feminism, even in the West, the time paralleled to Simone de Beauvoir and a lot of the first wave feminists, but just this idea that she, on her own, as an Indonesian woman, you know, felt that women's education alone was not enough. Her primary endeavor was this idea that women's emancipation must be can only be reached through political means, you know, by advocating for women in politics and by being participating yeah. in politics by having a presence. I think she really championed women's rights in a way by saying, "I'm going to be the one doing this." She was very much in, you know, involved in the early Indonesian parliament and... In the local um, regional government in Sumatra, where she was from, uh, as well as writing a lot of intellectual and academic um, responses to what's happening in terms of governance, how the country should move forward. She was very much, she was very outspoken and not willing to let other people speak on her behalf. Yeah, she mm-hmm. wrote a lot. She was a journalist. I think what's also interesting and can really, you know, hammer in the point that, you know, feminism is a Western construct, is in the Minangkabau culture that she came from. In Minangkabau culture, it's traditionally more matriarchal and matrilineal in the sense that it's the women who inherit land and carry on the family name. I think what's interesting to note as well, how is, you know, in our ignorance of knowing <laughs> who Rasuna Said is... Our discovery is, of who she is. Um, how much not aware we are about Indonesian feminist icons or just other Indonesian women heroes in general. Because I think most people who grew up in Indonesia and learned IPS and all the social studies, we're not really taught a lot about Indonesian female heroes and figures besides Kartini. Yeah, and I think especially in our generation, you know, we have Kartini Day, right? We have Hari Kartini and we get that day to really focus on one individual. But it's never been in the conversation of like, are there other Indonesian Mm -hmm. heroes, Indonesian female heroes? It's just about her and her story, which is great, but that's the extent of it. Yeah, and also I think today has been a parody of itself, you know. People use Kartini Day to wear kabaya and batik and it's about just being pretty and looking good and maybe getting an education. No, there's that quintessential image of Kartini with like her hair up and like dressed in kabaya and very, very quintessentially uh, beautiful and Indonesian beautiful. You know what I mean? Yeah. Having quirks and a spunk and just like a personality, but not too much. Not too much that you really shake the boat, shake yeah. the system, right? Yeah, I think and, that's a good point. And I don't want to sound like I'm discrediting her work and her legacy. But I think it's telling that she's the one that the Indonesian government has decided to give a national holiday or to include in the educational curriculum. She's the one that the Indonesian government, she's the one they decide to really spread out and like teach people about. But other heroes, not just like Rasna Said, but people like Trinidadian, 
And I think it's very important to acknowledge Indonesian women have come in different ways and forms and have fought for a lot of different things in the way that may not necessarily be convenient for the Indonesian government. This is such a uniquely Indonesian story that yeah. we don't hear about. Yeah. You know, we discovered this in the process of um, coming up with this episode. Yeah. So like when we were talking about Kartini, we're not necessarily critiquing the fact that she, who she is and what she fought for, but just looking at that as an example about where we are as a society. And can we open up the conversation to include more voices and more examples, right? If you just look. open yourself up and look into it, there's so much there. That's our episode. Thank you very much for listening. Yay! Thank you for listening to our second episode of Dialogica. You can look out our website, dialogica.id, where we posted all of the links and articles that we've discussed. You can also find more about ideas of feminism in general and our previous episodes there. And music credits for this episode to Jazar, Ryan Little, and Broke for Free. And I really want to emphasize the fact that we've researched this a lot and substantiate our claims. So if you look at our website, you can find out more in detail as well all of the stuff we couldn't include in this week's episode. There was a lot of stuff. But yeah, looking forward to the next episode. Thanks for listening. Bye!